Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. Okay. Uh, uh, I don't know. What do, we, what do we do? How do we start? How do we get into it? Um, I was going to say keep it quick and just introduce the episode. The good news about these episodes, the next three or four I still have up my sleeve, are episodes that are recorded uh, pre-global pandemic. So um, they're from a a very different world to the world that we now live in, um, a world where I am socially isolating. I am staying at home. I am currently unemployed. Uh, uh, all my live touring that I was going to do this year has been cancelled. So uh, sorry to the people who are going to come out to see shows. I really appreciate uh, so many people that already bought tickets to various shows. But uh, we've cancelled, uh, you know, pretty much everything for the next, you know, three, four, five months. And, you know, it's probably going to be longer than that. So, um, you know, we will put shows back on as soon as we can possibly put shows back on. And it's safe and reasonable to do that. But we're not going to push it because right now we've all got to play our part. And so if my part, as small as it can be, is to not be doing my job and to, you know, on a personal level, just staying at home and, you know, not coming into contact with other people is that if that's a small role that I can play right now, then it is my responsibility to play that role. And um, we do that because, of course, there are so many people, you know, and some people listening to this right now. And if you are, then you are a person who is in essential service right now, you know, I hope you know that the rest of us are thinking about you and we're behind you and we appreciate, you know, what you're doing right now. And the least you can do is just stay the fucking home. That's all you got to do if uh, you're a person who doesn't need to be out and about. Just, you know, stay home. Stay out of the way of other people, you know. Play your part right now for the the sake of the rest of the world. So anyway, I'm, uh, I am uh, currently, uh, you know, in a safe, nice place and, um, you know, surrounded, uh, you know, by a person that I love and the dogs and, um, you know, a cat and, you know, so... Um, I feel very lucky and I know there are a lot of people out there who are going through much tougher times right now uh, than, than I am, uh, but I'm going to plug my Patreon. There you go. That was a long-winded way of saying thank you to those doing the fine work, but I also uh, need to at least pay you know, uh, Podcast Mike who helps me put together this podcast and of course uh, James Fosdyke who does the original art. Uh, if I can just cover those costs, uh, that's what I really need. So I have a Patreon. It's called patreon.com slash willosophy, W-I-L-O-S-O-P-H-Y is uh, the address there. So if you have the resources now, and I know so many people don't, but if you do um, and you like this podcast and, uh, well, this is the time that I would appreciate, you know, some of that money coming in to cover those those costs of putting out this show. So if you like the show and you can contribute, um, now would be a cool time to do that. So I would appreciate that. But if you cannot, then, um, you know, when I start doing shows again, come out and and see a show that would be a fun way to do it or just pass the podcast on to somebody if you think they would enjoy it so thank you very much for listening i do appreciate it um uh, i have three or four up my sleeve that were recorded in the pre-pandemic world and then i've got to work out what to do my rule is podcast has always been that i only do face-to-face interviews because um i don't know it's 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 not really an interview show is it it's like a conversation show and a lot of the way that, you know, I like to have conversation is pick up on what people are enthusiastic about or, or really interested in what that, you know, their face lights up when they talk about and dig into that more, you know. Um, what, what, what will I do? Will I do them over Skype or will I do not face-to-face interviews or will I take a, 
a break for a while or will I revisit old guests that perhaps um, I could talk to? I don't really know how we're going to deal with this new world, you know, in general, but I'd like to have some conversations about it with some people. Um, I'd like to do them up to date. You know, I can't do them all in a bunch. That's sometimes how I do it. But I, right now, because the world changes so much on a daily basis and on a weekly basis, I feel like I should be doing episodes. So when I start doing episodes again, I think I would like to record them closer to when they come out so that the conversations can perhaps be more relevant. But I don't know. I haven't worked that out yet. So I hope you stick around to find out what I do. But in the meantime, I still have a few up my sleeve from the pre-corona world. So this one you're really going to love. Marty Sheargold. Marty Sheargold's like, you know, a famous radio comedian. He's one of the funniest guys on radio in the world, I would say. Um, but he was also a very fine stand-up comedian. And that's when I first met him. Very long time ago, 20, 20 plus years ago, um, 25 years ago. Uh, 26 years anyway a long time ago uh marty shiegel and i first met and uh he's a guy that i enjoyed having a um catch up with in a conversation i wish it could have gone longer and i perhaps hope maybe we can do part two at some stage maybe that's what i'll do during uh the break i'll do part twos with people i've already talked to in person oh there's an exception to the rule i don't know i'll work it out but anyway i hope you enjoy this episode thanks for listening Welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. Uh, this is how the podcast starts. I forgot to um, uh, warn our guest about this, but this is how the podcast starts. I ask you who you are. Who are you? Marty Sheargold. <laughs> you paused a little there. Yeah, because I was thought, should I say Martin Donald Sheargold? Is that your full name? Martin yes. Donald Sheargold. Do you ever get called Martin? No, never. You've never thought Australians about doing a John Farnham... No, they can't do R's and T's, Australians. It sounds like Martin. Martin, it's true. <laughs> um, and Donald was my mother's father's name. Donald's a funny name to carry through life. It is, isn't it? When you're a kid and people find out you're Martin Donald Sheargold, they're like, Donald, <laughs> what's wrong with you? Well, I mean, quite famously now, it would be much harder with you know Donald Trump, you know, in charge of the yes. US, but. In Australia, you, but there was no, you didn't get any sort of Don Bradman style no. credit for having a middle name Donald? No. no. I guess, I don't think we'd even respect Don Bradman as much if he'd gone by Donald Bradman. No way. <laughs> and as kids, like, unless you're a cricket nuffy, you didn't know Don Bradman's story till you got a bit older in right. life. And then you went, oh my God, he is a freak. Yeah. But when when you're a kid telling someone your middle name's Donald, you, you pray to God you'd known about Donald Bradman <laughs> to give it some context. Um, so Marty to everyone always, is that basically it? Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. Okay. And uh, uh, nicknames though, you'll, you'll get nicknames as well, right? I get called Shigsy now, which I never used to get called. And it was actually my older brother's nickname. And I'm not even sure how that sort of started. But I do get that a bit now. Um, and he, uh, I've, it's strange when you hijack your older brother's nickname. Right. It's like quite a strange thing to do. I've had to say to him, people are calling me Shigsy, mate. He's like, are they? I go, yeah. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Is that okay? It's like it's been trademarked. 
<laughs> I'm sort of stole your nickname, bro. Well, not just stolen it, but like stolen it in such a public way. Oh, you know, no. in the you become the most famous Shigzi, then must he have, can no longer be Shigzi. That's so true. And I must have I must have done it somewhere along the line. And it's just gained momentum. Um, but that's something he can work through. Uh, so welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for doing it. I, I genuinely appreciate it. It's Mate, nice to it's no trouble. get to catch up with you and have I a know. chat to you about life, which is always fun. Um, I ask people on this podcast if they have a philosophy. That's basically how we start yeah. and then we'll just have a conversation. But it can be about anything, life, love, work, whatever it is. But do you have like a guiding principle, a, a philosophy by which you, you know, view your life? Um, I guess it's always... I guess I'm sort of skewed towards working. Mm. Um, so it's sort of about persevering, you know, really. I've always believed that if you persevere, most things work out in life. Uh, unless you're terribly sort of misguided uh, or lying to yourself or being lied to. Mm. All of which could be true, though. All of which can happen at exactly the yeah. same time. But if you genu- generally persevere and hold the course, um, most things will work out, I reckon. Okay, well, that's a that's a good place to start. I like the idea of perseverance. So where does that come from? Where does Marty Sheargold... What's, what's the Marty Sheargold story? Where do you grow up? Canberra. Um, grew up in Canberra, one of four kids. And whereabouts in Canberra? In Belconnen in a suburb called Cook. Mm, yeah, okay. Because I know you spent time in Canberra. Yeah, and in Belconnen. I went to university at the University of Canberra, which is Belconnen. Yeah, right. so my brother went there. Spent a lot of time at the Belconnen Mall. Yes. In my yes, time. Yep. Uh, the Labour Club. The Labour Club. I saw Spy vs. Spy at the Labour Club. The Labour Club. It was huge. Sales, I think Sales. was the name of the pub that was on the... Yep, down on the lake. On the lake there. Yeah, all fun memories. <laughs> and so what were you studying in those days? Journalism. Journalism, that's yeah. right. I knew that. Yeah, yeah. I have yeah. a journalism degree. Right, so you finished, which is yeah. amazing. Graduated first. That's what I often say to people at comedy gigs. I said, if you didn't like tonight, you know, I'm not qualified to do this. <laughs> I'm a journalist and I think I'm pretty funny for a journalist. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. Yeah, yeah, right. Okay, so you were, so you came out of Gippsland, and what? How, why did you end up in Canberra though? I wanted to be a political journalist, right? So which I, was a place in to my head. To. There was only a few places you could do journalism, like RMIT in right. Melbourne, which I applied to. Yep. Um, UTS in Sydney, which I didn't apply to, and um, Canberra. Right. And when I got into Canberra, I was like, well, I want to do political journalism. It makes sense to mm. be somewhere where politics totally is. So that's how I ended up in. Uh, in Belconnen, Bruce lived in Bruce for a while. Bruce, yeah, um, all over the place. But so, yeah, what what did your family do? What's what's the Shegold family? Well, Dad was a headmaster, and and Mum's high done, school headmaster. Yeah, and Mum's done a lot of different things. She's she was um, successful in the public service, but she was a real self made woman, Mum. Okay, um, she had no qualifications, and she worked her way into top jobs, and and then. Um, ultimately ran real estate franchises with my brother oh, okay. in Canberra. So they were all go-getters. So where in the family are you? What kid are you? I'm third. I've got a younger brother and an older sister and an older brother again. Okay. So I was just sort of plodding along. Yeah. So, yeah, both three, like, you know, you can kind of... You're unchaperoned. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you spend a lot of time riding your bike around the suburbs, wondering what everyone else is doing. <laughs> why, why am I riding again? 
Well, that's interesting to me because I'd like to know what that life was like because it probably was a pretty safe. Totally. Yeah, you know, Canberra would have been a oh, you know, very safe right. place for a kid to you know ride the streets by himself. Well, and then. no twenty four seven news mm. cycle, so you're protected from the world. You're literally riding your bike around the suburbs of Canberra, mm. and unless someone in a van pulls up next to you and drags you in, you have got no issues in life. And no, and like you said, the twenty four hour news cycle, that constant fear was. Well, there was no there. bad news. Yeah, I wasn't a kid that was reading the paper. Um. And I don't even really sort of remember us sitting down watching the ABC News as a family. We were pretty, you know, we were pretty sort of the goodies followed by the Kenny Everett show. And, you know, that's sort of where we sat. Did you like comedy back then? Were you attracted to it? Like, you you know, you say the goodies and Kenny Everett and those sort of shows. Yeah, I really loved those yeah. shows. I love those shows. And then... When I was about 30. Have you ever tried to rewatch The Goodies as an adult? I've bumped into it. I've never gone start to finish on it. It's pretty camp and it had some crazy moments, but from a f- sort of narrative point of view, it's a bit light on. <laughs> Those boys were making a lot of stuff up on the day, I reckon. Um, so, okay, you have a, a nice life as a kid or do you feel like, you know... Yeah, I had you- a comfortable middle-class white yeah. boy life. And do you like being a kid? Like, do you look back on, you know, being a kid with fondness? Um, yeah, yeah, I do. I don't look back on it with anything other than sort of, you know. I find I have giant holes in my memory, though, and I'm not oh, yeah. sure whether this is a early onset issue or um, whether I've just not retained stuff. But I might also point you in the direction of the, all that pot you smoked There was a fair, fair hit out on the hooch there uh, <laughs> that may well have... <laughs> <laughs> tapped into some of that but yeah i sort of I, I remember it fondly but i don't if you if often dudes will go hey remember when i'll go not really mm. but i just go oh yeah 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 i remember that yeah uh well then this question's an interesting one but what's your earliest memory can you identify well, what you think is your earliest memory what i reckon it is and whether i think i've just told myself that this is it is a separate conversation but i believe i bought a fish, dead fish that I'd found in a stormwater drain in Darwin, which would have put me at about three or four uh. Uh, as a kid um, before we moved to Canberra. Um, and I believe I put it in the back of my dinky in the little tray and rode it home to mum and dad. But I don't know whether that actually happened because why would I be riding a dinky a long way from the house? Like I have a memory of it being a journey with a dead fish in the back of the dinky. But I can't imagine that that could possibly be real. At three years old, that there would be much of a journey. Yeah, and also... Although maybe your parents well, just had the same, well, same style of raising you at all stages of your life. Exactly, but also like it might have just been that the stormwater drain was across the road. Right, and that probably felt like a lot when you were that age, right? Totes. So hang on, so Darwin before Canberra? Darwin, born in Nowra. Because I was going to say, like, because you're just slightly older than I am. Yeah. And I was born the year of Cyclone Tracy. So were you guys in Darwin we when left that happened? literally the day before. The and, day before? Yeah. And mum, myself and my brother and sister mm. never went back. Um, Dad went back and dealt with, you know, having no roof and the family dog blowing off into God knows where, old rattles. Um, and um, from there, we just stayed in. We we moved to Canberra in in seventy five. Yeah. So. Yeah. I um, okay. So school in Canberra, like uh, public school, private school. What's your 
public what? primary and then a, a low level sort of Catholic. Actually, I went to a couple of schools. I went to public primary. Then we moved to London for Dad to do his PhD. And okay. I did a year in, in over there at about third or fourth grade, about 10 years old. Ironically, at the same school, St. Vincent's Primary. Then we came back. And then I went to a co-ed school, 7-8. And then I was worried I wouldn't get into the school that I wanted to be in for 11 and 12. So I swapped to that. For nine ten, and it was all boys nine ten, and then it went co-ed eleven twelve. So I've had this crazy sort of educational journey that's had women, no women, Catholicism, state, private. Yeah, so give me some uh, overview then. You're uniquely sort of well now qualified to tell me what about, you like. We're making decisions about our kids yeah. now. And their education. you've got all this information, and I got all this sort of experience, and I never had an issue with any of it. Um. Um, and I think the part that I enjoyed the most was probably the all boys component in there for a couple of years of just being a boy surrounded by boys, not being a different version of yourself for the opposite sex, you know, actually just playing touch footy and cricket. And that was fun. So I sort of look at that nine and 10 period and because in nine and 10, what are you really doing? Woodwork and drama. I mean, no one, I didn't. I wasn't. I wasn't an academic kid, and I wasn't a hard worker. But also, a nine and year nine and ten. That's like, I mean, that's your peak sort of confusing hormones kicking totally. in, isn't it? So that's like, putting sep- deodorant on. Remembering to put deodorant on. <laughs> putting some more deodorant on. Going links crazy, brute. <laughs> Making sure you got deodorant at all times. <clears throat> Counting your pubic hair regularly. I mean, deodorant for teenage boys. What the smells that are being produced by your body? Oh my god! Just all of a sudden, like you can literally spray deodorant under one arm, mm. and then by the time you've done the other armpit, the original one's smelling again. The teenage boy smell and the room, the bedroom <laughs> smell, is astounding. <laughs> it really is. It's phenomenal. It's just hormones oozing out of you. It's just a really heavy time how old are you i've got an 11 year old and a nine-year-old two girls okay so do you and so i mean same sex schools because i've always i I guess my theory you you kind of always yeah go towards what you know right i always went to co-educational schools yeah and so i would always think oh it's good you're gonna have to you know deal with the opposite sex in the real world Mm. so you might as well get used to you know Mm. how to deal with them while you're at school although i think sometimes many of the problems we have dealing with the opposite sex in the real world come from Mm. all the things that we build up before we know you know how to deal with other people when we're teenagers there's been a whole bunch of studies that say that girls do better academically when they're at same you know that one one sex schools rather than co-ed so Mm. what where do you land on stuff like that i think I'm, I'm, look, for me, it's not necessarily about the school. It's about the sort of community and the friendship groups and what's going to make the kids happy and for them to feel comfortable. I don't think there's anything to be gained out of challenging a kid for the sake of it and putting them into an environment that, that is, is going to, you know, trouble them. And for me, it's about making sure that they're happy 
first and foremost. Because there's enough challenges in life without doing Chinese in year nine. Right. Do you, do you know what I mean? <laughs> None of these kids are going to have a job anyway. <laughs> yeah. yeah, why ruin the nice well, part of your life? I know. <laughs> Learn like, code yeah. would be my advice. Regardless of your qualifications, <laughs> you're going to be fucked. A robot's already got your job. Already. <laughs> And your kids' kids, you won't even have to send them to school. You just push a chip into their ear. <laughs> and I actually talk about that at the stand-up show. I'm like, Google is just the craziest thing. Because there was a whole world before Google that you and I lived in. Those kids will never live in a world where they can't find something out in a half a second. And that's a fr- that, you know, that sort of database of knowledge is ridiculous. And I talk about it in the show that if you and I would like, you know, who's the lead singer of the Euroglides? Oh, I can't remember. That was just it. You just moved on. Mm. But that doesn't happen anymore. No one no. moves on. There's this eternal quest to, to not retain anything, mm. but to know stuff. No, I've got to find out right now. Right now. And then and I'll I, forget it for next time and have to look it up again. Totally. It is interesting to me because we're the crossover generation. Mm. I, I don't know if we appreciate so much uh, that we've lived through a version of the industrial revolution. We look at these historic times, you know, mm. from the history of the world, yeah. where the world changed forever and could never go back to what it was before. You know, the invention of the motor car and all these sort of things all that, of that just changed the world. Mm. We lived through one of those, mm. and kind of our generation, people our age, are at that perfect age where the first twenty odd years of our lives mm. were lived in the last bit of the old world before the new world came along. And then the next 20 years of our lives have been lived in the starting of this new world that has changed everything forever and nothing will ever go back. So I think we're the ones too will have the most problems with it all. You know, because we're the ones who went from the only time you saw porn was like, you know, a magazine someone found at the back of the school. in. That's right. That was porn. Yeah. No no one was buying porn. Right. To a generation where it is easily accessible at all times. Totally. I think we are the ones who... It seems like the next generation are probably going to deal with all this stuff better because they've been raised in it and with it. I couldn't agree more. And I can see that in, in my own kids now that, you know, it's it's nothing's an issue for them in that world. They have a limited sort of view of that world because of their age, but it's just what they do. Whereas when you and I sat down in front of a Commodore 64 and loaded Space Invaders for the first time, (laughs) it meant something. You had to put a tape in, an actual cassette tape. You had to have a mate who knew what letters they had to type to make it all start. You go kick the footy for 10 minutes and come back in and Spacey's was ready to go. And then you'd be like left, right. Like that meant something. That was huge. And even just we joke now about, you know, VHS movies coming out two years after the Hollywood release. All of that's real. Mm. And the baby boomers hold on to the moon landing. And I don't know what we're we're going to have to hold on to Google. Right. Well, I think that is it, though. I mean, it is that is what happened in our lifetime. Totally. The internet, you know. The internet is what happened in our lifetime. And how quickly things go from a joke to, you know, remember, like, it was only 10 years ago where... Oh, did you look that up on Wikipedia? Would mm. be the like you know the punchline of that is unreliable information. Yeah. And now it's like, oh, look it up on Wikipedia, <laughs> please, because I actually need to know. I know, it's it's yeah, it's. But I think if we, if you and I take that okay boomer attitude mm. to stuff, which we're not boomers, but that idea of you know, oh, life used to be great, and, uh, this wasn't how it was. Well, 
no one cares that no you feel cares. that way. You're only sabotaging yourself. Get on with it. You adjust, adapt. Don't judge it. Move forward with it. Bits of it you like. See, I don't have any social media because it never occurred to me to have social media. And now I'm sort of at that point now where dudes are like, oh, you sell more tickets if you have an Instagram page and just put a couple of videos a week on Instagram and you'd be surprised how well that goes. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I should probably do that. I don't think, no, I shouldn't do it. I just think it doesn't feel urgent for me now because I'm, you know, probably missed that window. Well, there is also, like, because there's a lot of the newer ones that I am just not, TikTok. Right. But I'm not going to go on TikTok. I wouldn't even... I don't... No, I'm not going to go on I've, I've watched some of them. I seem to know what it is. Yeah. But I feel like a man of my age going on TikTok feels like I'm driving my car too slow past the school. Mm. It just oh, feels like this is a place that you should not be, old man. No. But at the same time, Facebook's really naff and twee mm. now. So we have... Our generation of Facebook dudes, we have to find something that's age appropriate mm. that isn't Facebook. <laughs> Because that is just like what's your old mate from year 12 doing now. That's like ridiculous. So we do need to find something that's age appropriate. Uh, so um, you've got kids and you have to view the world through the prism of that. Have you always had that attitude of embracing, you know, the next generation to have that idea of, because it's something I'm talking about a lot in my show as well, is that idea of going, I don't want to be, and I know how easy it would be to be these guys mm. who just, get to this age and complain that everything used to be better in the old days and mm. that young people are no good and, mm. you know, blah, blah, blah. I don't want to be that. And no, well, you're not that. And I think what, you know, I know that you you don't have kids, but I also know that you would have been a great father because one thing you and I have in common is we've done most things mm. in life and we're not, morally judging people for the decisions that they've made. Yes, I'll bitch about every bloke that's ever been born, but I'm not making moral judgments about people. And I think as a parent, that is a really important thing to be able to say to your kids, whatever you've done, don't panic. I'll have done it. <laughs> it's We can navigate our way through it. Yeah, I'll probably crack the shits because yep. it'll annoy me. Mm-hmm. Um, because it probably annoyed me when I did it. Yeah. <laughs> and it certainly probably annoyed my parents if they'd ever paid attention to me, but I was too busy yeah, riding, was riding the streets by myself. I was just riding the bo- a bike around. So I think that's what we, we, we come, our age group of people right. come at, at life having done most stuff, if you've lived a bit of a life like we have, in the back of pubs and you know carrying on a bit at different times through life. And I think that's you know good practical so you do, because that's that's an interesting perspective because I think that some people worry about the idea of when you have done all, you know, you've lived a life, how you would ever then reconcile, you know, raising a child, you know, to being able to tell them about that, what you would tell them, what you don't tell them, you know, uh, your worries that you would have. Just even just the worry that you're going, I'm a pretty sensible person and I did all these stupid things. Totally. Like, <laughs> totally. I'm quite a fear, naturally fearful person right. as well and still have done the most ridiculous <laughs> things through life. But I think when you've got kids, I don't think you need to be revealing all your you know, life stories, no. but you certainly need to be sort of you know, putting some perspective and context around their behaviour 
Because nothing, unless you actually die, nothing's the end of the world. Most things can be fixed. Did you always think that you would be a father? Um, I don't think I really thought about it. No, at all. Like just the, no, I never had it'll, a it'll come or it urge. won't, one way or the other. No, yeah. I think there's a strong, strong argument for not being a parent now that I have kids and I couldn't love those kids anymore, mm. but I can see how much energy and emotional energy and how much of yourself you give away as a parent and that's quite frightening. The grass is always greener, but at the same time, being a parent is really just a process of not only giving yourself over to someone else, but watching them move away from you at the same time. You you know, you're always sort of watching this tiny life make its own way. Yeah, and, and in some ways, if you're doing it properly, that's what you're Totally. It's happening, that's right? That's what you're aiming for. It's it, that's resilient actually, kids that actually can live the life. aim of the game. That's right. You want resilient resilient kids that'll go and experience the world, but you want them to go and travel in Spain, but you don't want them to fall in love with a Spanish bloke because they'll end up living in Spain. <laughs> then you're going to have to move to Spain. <laughs> I mean, Spain's quite nice. Spain's lovely. <laughs> could <laughs> but be I'd worse. rather live here. <laughs> she could be in Haiti or somewhere and I fall say, in love with a Haitian guy. I say to the kids, we'll get 100 acres yep. and we'll whack three houses on them. <laughs> and then you've always got it if you want it. I mean, I'd love you to live here with your family. <laughs> it's up to you. It's a beautiful home. It's the one you wanted. <laughs> but if you're moving out, you're yeah. moving out. My parents were always, they, their big theory was that you should love your kids enough that they want to stay in your home until they finish school. Yeah. And you've got to love them enough that they want to leave the minute they finish. Yeah. They, well, they, we did. You know. We left. I'm not sure about you, but I was pretty much out of, I went to the, I did ANU for a couple of years doing a Bachelor of Arts. Did you have a good time at ANU? I had a great time. Yeah. Loved it. I mean, ANU was, and particularly, we wouldn't have, we probably, what years were you at ANU? Um, 1991. So, yeah, okay. So, I reckon I got up there in 91, maybe, yeah. right? So, yeah. anyway. So, yeah, we must have almost crossed over. We were probably at some hunters and collectors gig well, or something. Yeah, absolutely. At the, the hoodoo gurus the, the at the uni exactly. bar. And they were always playing at the University of Canberra. It was like they had a residency. <laughs> <laughs> Paul Kelly, again? Yeah, no, there were some great gigs in those days. Um, um, Canberra was a good place to go to uni. Like, I, I don't know what it was like for a Canberra person, but what I loved about it as, uh, you know, an interstater was that there were a lot of people who were interstaters. You know, it was a lot of people. Very who, transient town. Yeah. Canberra. Sydney, Melbourne in particular, but a lot mm. of those big country centres, a lot mm. of the kids all went to uni in, Absolutely. in Canberra. Yeah. And then, of course, because of the size of the city, you've got two, you know, brilliant universities mm. and like a lot of crossover between, you know, just going to events at different places. Well, particularly you see people going to, you know, events at ANU that tended to have yeah. more and better events. Well, there but, was only about three or four decent bars. Right. So you sort of... You, Did you ever go to comedy? Were they running comedy at the private bin when you were in I, Canberra? That, I died like a dog at the private bin. Um, still to this day, it's one of those gigs that when I think about it, my <laughs> asshole immediately <laughs> tightens. 
I took the gig because it meant I didn't have to catch a bus from Melbourne to Canberra. Mm-hmm. They were going to fly me. And I was like, I'm in. It was a trip home. Foolishly, I had three or four beers before I went on. It was the end of Duntroon's year and it was the end of the university's year. So the joint was full of about 600 army and, and students. And I was so far out of my depth and so underprepared for that kind of nightclub comedy spot. My little brother nearly ended up in a fist fight with a dude in the crowd. Guys were chucking ice at me. At the end of the night, me and me, one of my older brother's friends went over to the promoter and he wasn't going to pay me. And the and me, me older brother's mate's like, you're paying him. You start to write a check, he goes, no, you're paying him with cash, mate. And I'm like, I did my time. Like, I wasn't very funny, but I did do my time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's the conversation I was having with the guy who ran the joint. I wasn't very funny, but I did yeah. do my time. Yeah. So you do have to sort of pay me. <laughs> oh, it was hideous. Foul. Uh, yeah, I never did a gig there, but I went to a lot of gigs there. I saw a lot of comedy there. And they're the ones where you just you just you never really fully recover from those ones. In front of your family, dying like a dog, <laughs> half drunk, having to argue for your payment at the end of the night. I mean, it doesn't probably fill them full of, you know, confidence oh, that this is gonna imagine? be a great career for you. Could you imagine what they were thinking? They must have just been like, What is this kid doing? He's dropped he's been asked he's been it's been suggested to him that there's an alternative to his acting course. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> he's not finished his degree at the ANU. Now we've seen him come back to Canberra as this stand up comedian and possibly do the worst show that's ever been done <laughs> in Canberra. <laughs> of any kind of show. <laughs> Uh, they must have been, God love them though. They never mentioned it. Um, but, uh, I, I'm very fascinated by that because my first year doing the festival, I was just doing a. Um, there was one of the shows that um, uh, the comedy festival put on. You know, so like just new newer comedians, a lineup show. All you know. doing ten minutes each. Yeah, exactly. That one of those sort of things, right? Mm. And so I've invited a whole bunch of you know family and friends, mm. many of whom. Uh, have never come back to see me since. Oh, wow. So that's... You lost them early. I mean, that's got to have been a bad gig. The fact that they've not once in the next 25 years gone, we could Let's check see back how in. He's going. I mean, he's still doing it. He must have got a bit better. Let's see how he's going. <laughs> yeah, that's tough. It, I don't know. Those, those, but they're, they're the character-building ones. You know, they're the ones where if you can get up after those ones... That's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about persevering. And there's a madness to it, absolutely. There's a deep madness to it. And I think a lot of it is driven in those early days by fear. And what sort of fear? Talk to me about that. Well, for me, the fear was always about... There was lots of conflicting fears. It was like, I am refused to be a nine-to-five dude. That was one of the greatest motivating sort of driving for... That was a real fear for me of like, um, you know putting a clip onto one side of your pants and riding to bloody Cooper's, you know, Lyrebird Waterhouse or whatever they're called now and sitting in a corral and leaving at 5, 5.30 and doing that for 40 or 50 years. Well, I just, I just was so concerned about that that I would do anything not to do that. 
So that was a real fear factor driving me forward. And then the fear of sort of not being good at something also drove me forward as well. The idea that I was going to fail used to be quite, that used to be a real fear for me. Um, when did you acknowledge, or have you still, I, 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 it, that you are good at what you do? Like, do you know well, when, the, when that confidence came to go, I am good at this now? Um, no, I don't know when that came. Um, but I think you sort of you you sort of gather that from the people around you more than I thought about it myself. Um, I still think of myself as just a, a working comic. I don't think of myself as anything out of the ordinary. I think there's a select few of us who have been around long enough now to feel grateful for the careers we've had. But I still think of myself as a worker. So that's interesting. So that's clearly a big part of your makeup then. You know, these themes keep coming up through it, you know, perseverance, you know, worker, you know, like, so what that acknowledgement, because you've got to, because it's something I respond to very much. Like, I think that I have, we have a very similar attitude in the way that we approach things, at least in that regard, which is that it it is work and, Mm. you know, you just continue to chip away and sometimes it'll go great and sometimes Mm. it'll go terrible. And I definitely recognize all that stuff those things you talk about, the fear, those those were fears that I had too. Mm. You know, people say, oh, why did you want to do comedy? And a lot of the time it's like, because I didn't want to do something normal. Yeah, totally. That was part of it. It totally. might not have been comedy. It might have been something else, but yeah. I was definitely looking to not do something normal. Yeah. But then kind of have approached it in the way of somebody who, you know, would approach a job, you yeah, know. Yeah, it's become work. It, it becomes work. Mm. So you look back on your career now, like, and it is a career now, you know, there is... Yeah, you, know, you have done all these things. You mm. know, people can stand back and look at it and go, "Look, I, pr- I I'm going to argue the case that you know Marty Sheargold is very good at what he does mm. by just presenting all this information that supports the case." Yeah. But does your brain compute in a way that it looks back on that and says, "Ah, oh, well, I guess that I am really good at this because if I wasn't really good at this, I would not have been able to achieve all the things I've achieved in the last you know 25 years." I don't think of it as being really good at it. I think of it as having a skill set and applying it. I don't, I'm not patting myself on the back at night going, you've cracked the code on this one. And I think a big part of going back to stand up was to remind myself that you, it's still okay to fail because those, those early spots as I was knocking this thing back into shape were like, Phew. there was a couple of long drives home after those. So, yeah. So let's talk about that. We had a, we had a little chat about it on the preview episode, but, you go back to stand-up comedy after 15 years, really, mm. which is can be a lifetime in stand-up comedy to mm. not have done it for 15 years. Mm. I mean, some fucking idiots would do 15 shows in 15 years. And yeah. so this idea that, you know, you have to go back into this world where you're surrounded by young people for yes. a start. Yes. How was that? Like just even walking into I rooms. didn't know any of them. Right. Uh, I was introducing myself, assuming that they didn't know me as well mm. because I wasn't thinking of myself as a comic. Um, and you and I know how clicky that scene can be. I didn't know any of the politics. I didn't know who was the cool kid on the block or who was the kid doing weird, questionable gear or who's the blue guy. You know, all of those labels that we all use about comics we know. Yeah. Um, I didn't know any of that. So that was refreshing. One thing I... Th- I th- we like I remember when we were young kids coming up through. We used to watch a lot of comedy, and I wonder if these kids watch enough comedy. And I don't want to sound like uh, dad, 
but I wonder how much comedy these kids are watching and how locked in they are to just what they're doing. There seems to be real... There seems to be more of a driven sort of singularity to what a lot of these kids are doing now than the broad brush sort of shotgun thing that was going on when we started where you'd go and stand up the back of the Gershwin even if you weren't even if you weren't on you'd go to the Espy on a Tuesday and a Sunday absolutely now I don't know if that happens anymore it doesn't yeah I mean it does with some people but there is not that culture of no probably because in a lot of ways if you want to go and watch a lot of comedy you can you know, listen to a podcast or you can go to YouTube or you can watch mm. a Netflix special. There's accessibility to watching comedy, but that idea of us all going to the gigs and hanging out and going and watching other people's shows and seeing what other people were doing, I don't think I don't know if it's that's the fair. same. No. And, you know, I, I never get this dude's name right, but it's Dara, the, the Irishman. Oh, Dara O'Brien. Yeah, right. Yep. So he's on one night at at a room that I'm working mm. and I'm backstage and I say to this group of comics, I'm going to go out the front and watch mm. this bloke. He's an international. Mm. No one followed me out. I just assumed we'd all go out the front and watch an international do right. 15 minutes of his best. One gear. of the greatest comedians working in the world, Dara O'Brien. Um, we're watching him, aren't we? Well, I oh know we'll catch him next time he's popped into the comics lounge <laughs> on his international tour. <laughs> like, There's a few old school dudes out there, like with me. I wasn't on my own, but there was a section of that backstage area that didn't bother to walk yeah. 40 meters to Just, watch one of a guy who's come from a complete like 20 hour flight and he's popped into this gig in between him doing shows, you know, sold out theater shows at Hamer Hall, and which I assume those people back. Backstage aren't going to see his Hamer Hall show. So. And I said to him, how many times you've done the show? He goes, 160 times. Yep. <laughs> like, oh, well, I'll come and watch Ted. I'll watch you piece your best Ted together for this crew in North Melbourne. But that sort of thing, like, I, was, I, I guess, you know, that's who we were as kids and that's who we learnt from, you know, standing out the front watching good comics. And, they, and our generation of comics were very good comics. Yeah, I talk about this a lot, but I mean, we had a great luxury to be walking into rooms and to see weekly, Mm. you know, I mean, this was the thing, particularly if you're a cheese shop or Mm. any of those great shows that were kind of weekly shows through the pat and things Mm. like that, where you would see, you know, Fleety at his best of being Fleety. I mean, because, you know, this is, you know, really young, you know, you know, yeah, just getting great Fleety. Absolutely, um, Fleety in his Morgs, early 30s. Linda Gibson, you know, Judith was coming along at that stage. Yeah. Like you said, the empty pockets and, you know, um, uh, Lane on Woodley, well, you know, found objects and then Lane on Woodley and, mm. you know, Miss Itchy and like, yeah. you know, there was all these amazing comedians. I mean, Kingy, of course. Well, people was, were trying stuff too. Yeah. And I'm not saying that they're not trying stuff now, but people were trying stuff every week, mm. like Vic Plume. Right. You know, it would just put a jar of Eno's into his mouth and drink a schooner of water Mm. and stand on stage and pretend he's having an epileptic fit. (laughs) I mean, that's still funny to me. (laughs) I'm not seeing a lot of that stuff. (laughs) When when Merrick and Rosso used to have Jack Sims in their group and one day at the ESPY they just threw lettuce and tomatoes at each other because they were wearing stack hats. Or even Duff and Rove doing their double act. There was yeah. a lot of stuff, Fred Rowan and Crazy E and all of that sort of something hot before bed sort of sketchy stuff. There was a lot of stuff going on that I don't see now. But also I'm not pretending I'm 
I've folded myself back into the comedy circuit. No, and I think that a lot of that stuff is absolutely happening. I'm but sure what, it is. But what is happening more and more, and this is probably just a, there are nights. You know, if you went to Crab Lab on a Wednesday night, you're probably going to see more of that stuff in Melbourne. And if yeah. you go to Giant Dwarf in Sydney to yeah, some of the shows they put on there, you're probably going to see more see of that, that stuff, stuff yeah. you know. It just is in a specific place yeah, rather than to be being broader, didn't yeah, it? Yeah. Rather than at your, you know, line up at the SB mm. where it's a whole bunch of stand-ups and stuff, there would also be all this other stuff happening. You know, yeah, that's as well. right. Yeah, that's exactly what's happening. Yeah, it's become a, a little bit splintered, and it used to be far sort of more centred. Right. But what's funny about it too now, going back, is some of the same old faces. It's mm. like, dude, you can't. <laughs> You can't You're still, still here. You can't still be doing this. <laughs> then I'll hear them do the same jokes. Yeah. I'm like, well, that's why you're still Well, they're here. just waiting to get it to work. What are you? What well, are you? One day, people, one day someone's going to hear this and they're yeah. going to go, oh, no, you're right. It's funny, isn't it? I always used to say, well, when guys would throw in the towel because they couldn't make mm. a living out of it, I used to think, well, why did you start? Did you want to make people laugh? Or was there an end goal that has disappointed you because it hasn't come to fruition? Because why aren't you still doing the occasional Monday night open mic just for yourself? That's what I wonder about people that really throw the towel in. It is interesting, isn't it, the the people who walk away from it completely? Because totally, I, you know, there's a, there is a small part of me that like you know constantly has that you know. I mean, I think there's a small part of everyone. Yeah, I, I, the one that I always come back to is you know you hear these people who there'll be like a plane crash or a train crash and someone just takes that moment to start a new life. Yeah. You ever hear about that? Yeah, yeah. Like there's just like, and it's not regular, regular, but it no, happens it enough happens. that it's like totally. a specific phenomenon. And I always just think, imagine just in that moment, you look around at the wreckage and the dying bodies and you think, well, this is an opportunity to start fresh. <laughs> and, I can make something of this. And there is a little bit of me that sometimes, you know, we've, we've done this for so long, you know, yeah. that, that goes, I wonder what my life would look like if I just went away and was... Mm anonymous did not need you know to put myself out there and it's interesting isn't it because mm. the anonymity part of it is is what's appealing to me being able to sort of not worry about how i'm being perceived or or even just turning up at things i used to have real arrival anxiety because I didn't know what people wanted or expected from me when I got there. Yeah, okay. And I was really overthinking it. I was, And all of this mantra about just be yourself, you can only be yourself, would go out the window as I was three steps from opening the front door to wherever I was going. And and that that sort of idea of stepping away and not having that anxiety is quite appealing or was for a large period of time. So, uh, yeah. So talk to me a little bit more about that feeling because I recognise it very much, but that idea of, it's not that, and it can often be misconstrued as well that, you know, that you don't like people or that mm. you don't want to go to this party or this, mm. you know, whatever. But mm. often what it is is that weird anxiety. Really weird. Which is that you have layered all this, you know, thing in your mind of yeah. what, what do these people expect of me? Totally, and I won't worry about going to do a show. It won't even enter my mind until I'm sitting backstage and getting myself up and about. I won't think about it through the day, but you tell me I've got to go into a box at the MCG with 15 strangers for an afternoon, and I'll think about that for a good couple of days in the lead-up. I'll be like, 
I'm going to cancel. I don't have to do this sort of stuff. Why should I have to go and do, meet these people that I don't know? And, you know, I'll go through, I'll do all this scenario building. <laughs> it's just burning energy. And I'll just turn up and do it. Right. <laughs> so now I just go, hey, why don't you leave out all yeah. that burning up of your whole sort of core of energy and just turn up and do it, mate? How did you get to that point, though? How did you get well, from I realized, that to I what realized you are now? I was just being, you know, I was, I was only sort of hurting myself. And the anxiety, whilst it felt real, is still kind of imagined because you're making up this scenario of how all this is going and you're the only one doing that. No one else is sitting two days before this gig thinking about you, mate. No. No, or two days after it probably. <laughs> um, so how are you a different person, you know, from 15 years ago when you were doing stand-up last time? So... In that 15 years that you've been away from stand-up, how have you... What are, what are the predominant ways that you've changed as a person in that time? I mean, I'm sure there are a, a, a lot oh, of ways, yeah, but well, what, are the, what are the main things um, that, you know, Marty from 15 years ago wouldn't recognise in Marty of today? I think I've mellowed a lot in that 15 years. Um, I've had a couple of spectacular failures that I needed to have to sort of you know, touch base with how fleeting this work can be and how lucky in many ways we are. And I think I've compartmentalised a lot of stuff and just shut the door on a lot of stuff where I just won't go down that road in my mind anymore. And, yeah. how, and, and you just... Is that something you came to by yourself? You just, like, you know, you finally were like, this is just taking too much... Yeah. energy in my life yeah i was really punchy from a work point of view and i was really um firm on a lot of stuff that i would and wouldn't do and be a part of and that made people's life around me difficult because there's a whole group of people that have to manage people like us and and we know exactly what our behavior is doing to them at different times along the way and if you can't moderate your own behaviour, knowing the effect that it's causing other people, well, then it's becoming, you know, quite ridiculous. And that's how I felt about sort of maybe 10 years ago. And so the awareness of how it affects other people is, is interesting because often I think that, um, you know, it, a lot of that stuff comes from us, you know, hurting ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. Like as in like, you know, we are angry at ourselves or we don't think we're good enough or we think we're in a position where we're, you know, desperately trying to hold on to it or prove that we're, we're good enough to do it or all these various things that can lead to somebody behaving in a bad way. I mean, people can also just be assholes. Like, yeah, yeah. you know, there's, I've met some people who were just assholes in my time as well. But totally. a lot of the time when I meet somebody who's, you know, been through that period of time, it started with them not being happy about themselves and yeah. then that got taken out on everybody else around yeah. them mm. and the fact that you can see that it's affecting other people probably stops you from being a sociopath you know like you know mm. the, the idea that it's everybody else's day at work also yeah that's and right. that the way you're behaving is affecting now they hate their job because mm. you know they have to you know deal with your moods every day i'm not speaking specifically about you here i'm just like in no, a general but sense I, i'm i i can see a lot of that in in some of my early behaviors in 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 the work environment 
I was really controlling and really um, a heady mix of wanting to be in control but putting in a minimum amount of effort mm-hmm. because I could it, it always came naturally to me. It wasn't hard work. It never felt like work. And I couldn't understand why other people couldn't get on that page. And I had no tolerance for dudes that weren't sort of batting at the same sort of level as me. And then I, I thought, you know what, mate, this is just something you're good at. So just understand that you don't know why and you haven't, you know, mastered the art of. It's just something you're good at and stop being an arsehole and making everybody's life misery because you don't think they're as good as you. And so once I sort of pushed through all that ego shit, I I'm, I liked myself a hell of a lot more too. Well, because, I mean, nobody really wants to make anybody else's day shitty. No. And that wasn't who I was either. No. You know, I wasn't that dude. I'd never been that dude prior to being into radio because comedy is such a insular, single-handed pursuit that suddenly you're thrown into these giant teams with so many people reliant on your success. It is quite a challenge in the early days. And also you've gone from being a solo performer, although you had collaborated as well, like mm. life, but someone who is in charge of what you say and how totally. you say it and That's right. the control of it. And then suddenly you have to at least share some of that with a broader team. Entirely. And in those early days before you find your own voice and and work out how to navigate through respectful conversations about what you are and aren't prepared to do, I was very punchy mm. because I didn't have the dialogue and I didn't know. I just thought we all just said what we thought yeah. and fuck, aren't we just, what are we doing? How long was this meeting going for? Yeah. You know, I was that guy. <laughs> yeah. I said what I said, dudes. Yeah. Are we done? Yeah. You know. And there's still some value in that. Well, there is if you're you with the right keep, group of people. Yeah, you have to keep the right stuff, right? Yeah. You have to keep, you don't want to get rid of, you know, because sometimes you know, people do need leadership in creative situations or sometimes people do need someone to say, no, this is how we're doing or make a call on something. So you yeah. don't want to lose what makes you great in the mix. But no. if what makes you great is making everybody else feel terrible, it's it's quite a karmic load to carry with you i would have thought it is and the responsibility of 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 sort of those big machines around you is a lot to take on when you're wavering with your own confidence and abilities anyway do you have a philosophy for radio because you've been so successful on radio i mean i would argue that you know in many ways you are a singular performer in radio in that it's rare that somebody comes along and really you know, redefines the parameters for what it is that you can do within a certain space. And I feel like that you are a person that I could point to and say, you took a very commercial space, mm. but attacked it in a way that always felt like you were, you know, playing your own game, you mm. know, mm. and, but managed, but have managed to be successful within the system at the same time, you know, yeah. fuck with the system, but also, reward the system and be successful in the system because it's very easy to come in and go this is all shit and everybody's doing this wrong and blah 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 but those people don't normally last whereas you've managed to do a bit of constantly subverting what radio yeah what someone will sit in a meeting and tell you you're meant to be doing on air often doing the exact opposite of that in a craft sense in a content sense in an engagement sense and yet 
been able to operate very successfully within that world. Yeah. I think that's... I, I think there are other people who can now do that because you did that. Well, that's very flattering. And, and you know, I don't, I don't, I see parts of what you're talking about, but because I'm in it mm. and it is such a strange beast, it, for me, it's now, it's, it's, I have a strange relationship with radio now. I love the discipline of it. I love the, f- the structure around me because I can get pretty loose pretty quick. Mm. If you, And now as I get older and I used to think doing 200 plus shows a year was oh, a bit of a pain in the ass. Now I really crave that work and I fear the day that it's taken away from me because that's going to leave a big hole in me taking away 200 plus shows a year. That's a lot. That's a lot of your time. And, and it's a lot of your time that you think about it, the disciplines around even just that amount of work, uh, let alone the conversations that you go through day to day about content and quality control and client integration, <laughs> all that back-end stuff. But I can deal with that stuff really quickly now too. And I've given a lot of that stuff away. I've given a lot of that stuff back to the rightful owners. It's like a welcome to country. <laughs> you can have Dunkin' Donuts back. <laughs> I can't help them anymore. <laughs> so, you know, I'm a bit more client skewed now yep. than I ever was as a young bloke. I've, you know, it's the commerciality of the business. You know, it's the dark side of the business, but it's also the business. Right. It's the bit that actually pays your bills. and Well, it's the bit that, that, that is the whole business. Mm. That's what it's about. It's commercial radio. That's why it exists. If you fight it, yeah. you'll lose. The radio is there to sell the ads. Totally. Yeah. Absolutely. It's not even a music delivering platform. No. Not anymore. It hasn't been for a long time. No, not for a long time. The minute iTunes and Spotify mm. rolled out. See, I think where we're heading now is just delivering content breaks. Yeah. Much like what you're doing here, but in bite-sized pieces. So I think, you know, you and your mate sit down and you crunch out eight four-minute bits, nine four-minute bits. You don't bother with listeners ringing the show. You can still integrate a client. People can register online to be part of that activation. And then you email that to Spotify and then the consumer builds their own playlist around that content or just listens to it as a clean skin. Right. But this idea of going to sit in a radio station is ludicrous. It's ludicrous now. So it won't survive in its current shape. It simply can't. I get that we're still going to have 40 guys sitting in sales, and so we should. But you don't need me in the building. That's old school. And in a way, you're punishing me by making me turn up. (laughs) And they're the conversations I'm having at the yeah, moment. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> that one came out pretty naturally. <laughs> so I've still got that. Your, yeah, still my favourite bit of that was just that little... <laughs> and in a way, you're punishing me. <laughs> I've still got that streak in me. A little bit. <laughs> yeah. I can still get up if I'm passionate about... And I am passionate about that. And I think that everyone having to turn up and... And, and turn up at a certain address at a certain time is is not is not required anymore. 
so um, what do you think happens when we die? I ask this a lot on the podcast. Oh, well, I'm, I'm, I was brought up a Catholic, but I'm not a believer in a supreme being. None of that's left in you? I don't think there's any consciousness. So I think we revert to matter and then, you know, we're absorbed back into whatever we came out of. Unfortunately, for me, I don't think there's a consciousness attached to that. I certainly don't think there's a version of me floating around making sure the kids are okay into their 50s and 60s, you know, and just easing through a wall. I, I don't... I don't. <laughs> but what a great sitcom that we can pitch. <laughs> <laughs> it's the ghost of Mrs Muir. I just... I don't think any of that is real. I'd like to have some kind of faith in mm. something. I guess I'm a humanist in that sense. And I hope that we will all ultimately, you know, come to the realisation that we've only got each other. Give me a sec. I'm just going to... So if you don't believe in, um, you know, a faith of some kind, which is uh, this microphone just fell apart, did you know? So it's a very nice studio that we're in <laughs> at my house. With the, I gave Marty the warning beforehand. Marty, who works in com- you know, commercial radio, I said, just don't kind of fiddle with the cord. Okay, how are <laughs> And now my mic stand that I've stolen from some gig is now falling apart. So, um, no, so I... I guess the reason I asked that question, and I'm not surprised by your answer, although I'm very happy for anyone answering whatever way that they want. Mm. But if you are a person who doesn't really believe in any sort of grander face, mm. why are we here? Like, what is it that, you know, why are human beings mm. and how do you, you know, what, how do you explain our life and why it's like this? It's really, I don't know why our life is like this. And, you know, what we all are is aliens to each other, whether that's the way you and I see the colour blue or whether that's the way we see letters on the page or even in the way that we think in images or language. We are, what I do know is we are absolute aliens. And the fact that any of us get on is astounding with our own agendas, our own moral codes, our own egos and the idea of our own identities, the fact that there is any community at all is constantly surprising because at the end of the day, there's a lot of people in it for themselves and there's a lot of appalling behaviour socially. Do you think... Collectively. I I mean, there is a lot of appalling behaviour. Is it natural to us as human beings or do you think it is a result of our time? I mean, there's always been appalling behaviour, clearly. Always been appalling behaviour. And that's what, you know, we've found out since this 24-7 news cycle is just how much appalling behaviour goes on around the world all the time. In every country. There's... And it's... Yeah, it's it's a really... You know, and what we've realised with this coronavirus now is how reliant we all are on China. And and China's manufacturing and China's middle class to prop up the whole freaking world. And every time a kid in India comes out of poverty and joins the middle class and manufactures for all of us, we all high-five each other because we get to continue on living our extremely privileged white middle-class lives. Because without that consumer base and without them 
getting out of poverty, spending money, manufacturing, consuming, the world grinds to a halt when those really big economies buckle. So it's interesting, isn't it? Because, yeah, we have made ourselves incredibly reliant on it and now we're just seeing an example of what happens when something goes wrong. We're also seeing an example of how easy it would be for a country like China to get everybody to rely on them economically and then just turn off the tap if they wanted. Well, that's the, I remember a dude Why, said why to do you me, need a nuclear weapon if you could just, you know? Oh, sanction people out of existence. Right. A guy said to me in Thailand 25, 30 years ago, China, wait till that, and this is what he said, wait till that dog gets big enough to eat the US. Mm. And, I, and I still think about that now and think about this leader of the free world bullshit that the US carries on with and that we all buy into because we're quasi allies because there's this joint and pine gap that's mm. reading a couple of signals. Come on, guys, grow up. We're at the wrong team. We're with the wrong team. I get that that, 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 that there is, you know, uh, a communist, fascist <laughs> bent going on, but which one's worse? Well, yeah, that 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 is absolutely true. But the the thing about the Chinese is like, the, if the dog gets big enough to eat America, no, the dog's got big enough and smart enough that it's just bored America. Yeah, you know, it's like what they're going to do is buy their house and then evict them. Yeah. Well, and the other thing about Trump making America great again is that a lot of those things that he talked about, you know, building, bringing manufacturing back to some of those big steel mining towns like Detroit and, you know, trying to, you know, reinvigorate their car making and all of that stuff, he's just never going to be able to do that. And because China, and this is happening with us now, with Korea and Thailand and Holden, there's always a dude who can do it cheaper. Right. And there's always a dude in a suit who wants a dude who can do it cheaper. There is always a guy in a suit working an angle. Well, if the attitude is, if, you, if the only thing that you have to compete on is price, there's always somebody who's going to beat you. Totally. If that's all you've got, there's always somebody who will come along and beat you. Always. And if you can't compete in that, in that space, well, then you've become reliant on all those around you. I mean, we are doing... We are doing so little manufacturing here, little bits of engineering. I'm sure there's stuff going on that I don't know about, but none of it's grand scale that's going to save us. And when ScoMo promises a surplus and then gets on telly and talks about how unexpected the coronavirus was, yeah, absolutely, mate. You you will never deliver a surplus now. No. Oh, nowhere near. Nowhere near. I mean, he was going to struggle with the bushfires anyway. Of but course. the coronavirus, definitely not. And, and, yeah, the argument probably is that you don't need to deliver a surplus, by the way. A surplus is just the government collecting more money off us than they spend on us. Yeah. You know, <laughs> when they're so proud of how much they've got in surplus, you're like, well, you could have yeah. built a couple more schools and hospitals, I suppose, and then you wouldn't have had a surplus. Absolutely, totally. And I was asked on stage, was I comfortable with the amount of money being spent on the koalas? Mm. I was like, well... Hang on, you were asked? Yeah, I, I have a question box in yeah. the foyer. It's really a time-killing thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But it is entertaining. Yeah. And one of the questions was, am I comfortable with 90 million being spent on the koalas? And my first, first internal split second thought was mental health might be better served with that 90 million. Right. You know, it's a lot of money. It is a lot of money for koalas. But it's a lot of money for koalas when, when, you know, you've got so many holes in, 
you know, yeah, but, but, it, but, but so many different parts of our spending. Possibly a false dichotomy, though, right? Totally, of course. Because the ninety, you know, it's not a choice between giving no, ninety million dollars to mental health or koalas. No, it's if not. we'd made that choice. Mm. Fair enough. I wonder if, they, if, if they'd lined them up and they gone, who do we care about more, mentally ill people that would or be koalas? Inter- that would be then, an interesting GoFundMe page. Yeah. Koalas versus uh, dudes with depression. And just keep clicking and see which one wins. And you're allowed to use photos of koalas with bandages. Well, when, when a celebrity comes to Australia, we rarely, we rarely hand them a mentally ill person to take Harry, a photo just, with. Could you lift this guy up? We could just... <laughs> this is, this is red. like a 52-year-old a, single father. He's got PTSD. <laughs> thought it'd be a nice shot. Just a little... We, put him up on your hip. We, we're short on koalas at the moment, mate. No, but you're right. So, look, there's there's lots of stuff going on around the world that's mm. of interest to me. And I bumped into Adam Hills maybe, I want to say, like four or five years ago at an airport. And he was like, what you up to? I'm like, oh, mate, I'm, I'm playing with this idea of getting back into comedy, but I don't really like the dude that I was as a comic and I don't want to just come back and be that dude again, but I don't really know what to talk about. And I don't really know how to have adult conversations on stage with an audience and be funny. And so then at the end of the flight, we're sitting in different parts of the plane, he gives me his um, his um, Rolling Stone that he was reading on that flight. And he goes, really interesting article about um, Daniel Johns in there from Silverchair. Have a look at it. I go, thanks, mate. Great to see you. And I read that article later that afternoon and it's Daniel Johns talking about taking a hiatus from Silverchair and the artist that he was, wants to be going forward and how he's trying to make those changes in his work. And it was another one of those sort of moments where you go, if you want to have a voice, you have to create it for yourself. I'm not doing that with this show, but I feel like I'm closer than I've ever been. I don't feel like the voice that I'm using in this show is where I want to be, but I'm doing enough of Marty Sheargold and Marty Sheargold tricks to get people to come back. People will look at this show and they'll go, that was fun, that was funny, that was a fun night, I'll see this dude again. Mm -hmm. And then maybe the next time I'll get closer to what I want to be talking about. Because I do want to start to transition into some, some of those interesting sort of areas of even just what's it like to be a man now you know i'm intrigued by that i mean what do you think about that just if i asked you that question well i think it's so challenging for older guys now and we're seeing that reflected in the amount of guys that are taking their own life there's a lot of deeply deeply unhappy men in the suburbs and i i can only assume that they feel isolated and fractured and they've splintered away from whatever was grounding them in the first place. But there has to be a way to talk about that and make it funny. And I don't mean, you know, half-assed lame gags about guys taking their own life. There's no comedy in that. I mean, what is it to be a man? What are the funny things that we all share? What are those touchstone moments in being a 40-something guy that all the other guys will go, oh, that's, that's, why can't I get up and mow the lawn? 
why can't I make myself even do that? You know, this is not... Things are not going well for men, I think it's fair to say. Well, and I think that, you know, there's always going to be the problem with... I mean, and there's no one, you know, thing when it comes to suicide, but I know that you, you've worked in radio and media enough to know that, yeah, the big theory was always that you didn't talk about it, You don't right? mention it. You don't mention it, you don't talk about it. And I, and I know there's some studies that say that that's the case. There are some other studies that say that's a terrible idea. Yeah. I just feel it's a terrible idea because mm. we keep losing so many people. Oh. So clearly not talking about it is it's not, not working, working at all. No, it's not working. And... In a lot of ways, I think we're just pushing blokes further out into the suburbs and then they end up down in a garage and then they're just spending time on their own. They're scenario building. They're feeling inadequate. They're not ticking any of the boxes that they thought they might be ticking at this time in their life. And then for some bizarre reason that you could only be in in the moment, you think the best alternative is that you're not around anymore. That's the that's the tipping point that I've never that I still struggle with with suicide is so yeah so I'm I'm going to ask you then feel free not to answer this if you don't want to but um, you've never had a moment in your life where you thought you know maybe uh, you know this this would all be better off without me no I've never no. had that moment I've had moments where I can't get out of bed mm. but I've never but and and that's why I've always relied so heavily on this work structure. Because I am a master at compartmentalising whatever I'm thinking or feeling at four o'clock every afternoon, not one bit of that exists. There is not one thing that I that comes into my mind in that two hours yeah. that is that shouldn't be in my mind. And well, that, see, that's there, there is a great joy to that. I was having oh, this conversation with my Uber, Uber driver the other day and he was saying, oh, it must be a hard job when you're having a bad day. And I said, no, that's the, it, the bad day. days, are, it's the best time to go to work because yeah. the job requires you not thinking about anything else for that mm. period of time. Yeah, Barry mm. Humphreys used to say, you know, you walk out in front of 3,000 people and your first thought is alone at last. Oh, that's you know? so true. Yeah. That's a wonderful observation. And that's so true. But, you know, the other side of that coin is when you walk off now and this is what I'd forgotten and you walk into a, a dressing room and you're actually on your own right and that moment where you, <laughs> you've just been this version of yourself and you're hilarious and then you're having a Coke Zero <laughs> you know on your actual own just hoping anyone swings in and goes well done <laughs> is there anyone back here it's really so lonely it's yeah, there really is lonely. definitely a loneliness to that moment. In and it's particular. lonely at the airport, mm. and it's lonely when you're sitting in 27D, and it's and it's lonely when you're walking down to the theatre, and then it's not lonely for a little while, and then it's lonely again. It's a funny, strange business. Um, I, I have you seen the movie Groundhog Day? Yes. Okay, so you understand the premise. He's Bill Murray's living the same day over and over and over again. Mm. Uh, if you were in a Groundhog Day, so you're not aging, you're literally living the same day every mm. day. One, one of the things that Bill Murray did in that was he learned how to play piano. Yeah. Remember that? Yeah. What's the skill that you would take the time to learn how to do if you had the time Groundhog Day style? Wow, oh, that's a great question. If I could just perfect one thing over a Groundhog yep. Day scenario. Oh, jeez. Maybe I would do a musical instrument 
or I would do something creative. Maybe I would paint. Oh, yeah. Having never painted in my life. But if Ando can... <laughs> if he can use a cake spatula to, to somehow craft Lisa McCune, I'm sure I could do a sunset. <laughs> I didn't know that. You know, Marty Sheagod's replacing Undo. I didn't know he could paint. Oh, he's been in a Groundhog Day style scenario. It's such an uncharitable opinion people have of Arne as well. I always get this urban myth that some dude comes in and finishes the paintings for him. I'm like, well, okay, even if that's happening, why are you saying that? Well, you can't let Arne do one painting and have a chat with someone. There has to be a dude that comes in and finishes the painting. Yeah, I was going to say. It's, it's not, miserable. It's not like it's a... I mean, I, my understanding is you know, he gets a bit of the painting done beforehand, but sure. he's doing the painting. Of course he's doing the painting. And he knows who he's interviewing, so it's not like you can... I know. <laughs> it's just people... So, like, people always... Like, when comics get together, mm. we we really can go off the handle on dudes but that's that's sort of who we are and it's sort of like what we do and it's yeah. not necessarily malicious it's just we've all been doing it for so long that when someone's name comes up we know the backstory and we pick out the bit that we know would hurt them if they were in the chat we're trained professionals of it's course. what we do at all times and then when, when we're with each other it's just of course that's what you're going to do and that's why i always say to people you know, sometimes someone will get upset about, you know, something else that someone said to them in the community or about them or they've found out about some secret Facebook group where someone's <laughs> been having a, like, you know, yeah. go at them. And I'm like, yeah, what did you think was happening? I know. What do you think happens when you leave the room? I know. Like, well, and often not, often when you're in the room, it doesn't actually matter one well, way or the other. And you've just got to go, well, this is part of it. But also admit that you do it yourself. Like, of course, we all do it. Yeah. And I had to say to Tom Gleason, who I bumped into in Adelaide, mm couple of weeks ago i said tom i'm not gonna lie i've had a couple of shots at you over the gold logan campaign <laughs> but i feel like if i don't say that mate you might think i'm being disingenuous by even chatting with you he more than anybody else would understand he that. said it's fine yes, i said mate course. i know it's fine i said yeah. none of it's personal he goes of course but i think there's a group of people that i, I think you know when you target people like you know, the way that I've taken pot shots at someone like Sonia Kruger over the years after she said, close the borders. Mm. Well, that just became my Sonia Kruger gag. It lost its it lost its sort of... Connection with the original... Which was a ridiculous mm. thing to say the first time I said, close the borders. Now I've done it 73 times. It didn't mean anything to me. I'm sure it doesn't mean anything to her. Maybe if she's even aware of it. But I would always say to her if I saw it, you know, the clothes, the board, don't buy the act, mate. That's just, that's the act. That's the bit of me that'll say anything in the moment. That, that is interesting, though, because there are those who can't tell the difference between those two things. I'm still saying it's people at work now. Mm. You know, don't, please don't buy the act, even within the team. And don't buy the off air act if. You know, the sheet's wrong and I say to you it's wrong, you know, because it, it is wrong. Yeah. So that's the main point. <laughs> okay? The histrionics and drama... And did I mention are... that it's kind of punishing me to be here <laughs> in the first place? The histrionics <laughs> and the drama around it may not be required, but the <laughs> core of the point is that it's wrong. 
What's <laughs> what is your greatest uh, strength? Do you think as a as a person as a performer? Um, as a person, I I think it's as I've gotten older, I've realised that it, I, I'm I'm proud of the dad that I am. Great. So, what aspect of your father fathering, being a dad, what is it that makes you most proud? Do you think? Because it's a private relationship I have with them that I don't have with anyone else, mm-hmm. even their mum. It's let me reset what I think of myself with two human beings who don't know my whole story yet. So I get to be the dude that I probably arguably should have been for my whole adult adult life with these two guys now who are seeing the version of myself that I wished more people had seen through the journey. So I'm really proud that I can be their dad and they're beautiful kids. And, you know, from a sort of a, a performance point of view, I'm proud that I've done it on my own. I've never had a manager. I've only ever got mates off, jobs off mates. I've always swung pretty hard when I got an opportunity. And, you know, I've managed to sort of keep, keep on trucking, which isn't easy, as you and I both know. No, it isn't easy. Even just the output can be quite... How do you fill up the bucket? Like, you know, you, you're taking so much out of it and putting it out into the world. How do you fill it up again? Um, I, I treat myself well. Um, so I, I have breaks from drinking. I, I haven't smoked pot for a long, long time. Like, I gave up pot when I really got into radio because those two worlds just weren't sort of cohabitating. So I, I really, I ease off drinking and I try and do a, some form of exercise, even if it's walking. And I try and, um, you know, have a positive dialogue, internal dialogue with myself and try and be kind. Mate, this has been a real pleasure. I thank you so much for giving me all this time. I am, am conscious of the fact that... Uh, both you have a radio show to do this afternoon and I actually have to go and uh, do stuff do stuff as well. So yeah. um, I would love to, when, next time when you're doing, what, I'm so excited. My main takeaway from this, the thing that excites me out of this conversation that we had today was that little glimpse I got into that ambition for what the next show is going to be. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. And I, it, it says to me that there is still like, an ambition and a growth and a you know thought process in who you are and what you want to put out there yeah. to the world and I could not be more excited to to see that it's it's very exciting to have you back doing stand up I was always such a great fan of you as a stand up and mm. I remember so many uh, you know pe- like you know classic old bits of yours yeah, you yeah, know yeah. that you know still today that uh, so I'm so excited to have you back doing it I'm very excited about the idea that you've got more up your sleeve to come. This is the question that I always finish with, which is I have a time machine. I don't have a time machine, but if I did, I would offer you a round trip to anywhere in history or any time in your life to observe or change something. What would you do? A round trip to anywhere in history. Yeah. Or in your own life to observe or change something. Gee, if if I could do anything in history, it would be... Cricket related. Oh, okay, nice, good. Yeah, and tell it, me. And it would be the day, and I joke about this with Adam Gilchrist, that whilst I was a wonderful wicketkeeper, 
I was also the only wicketkeeper in the history of cricket who was scared of the ball. (laughs) (laughs) I would wind the clock back and knock Gilly out of that test team. Oh, my God. and perhaps even switch hit and play as a left hand. But what I love about that is what a posi- if you're scared of the ball, you've literally put yourself in the position where you most often have to be I was like- a specialist keeper. <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't get me far enough down the batting order. And I wouldn't prac- I wouldn't go into the nets and have a bat. I was like, nah. No. I'll be right on the day. <laughs> Uh, I reckon I've got more to offer in cricket. (laughs) Uh, Thank you, Marty. Thank you, mate.